Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Why did Jesus die? Why couldn't God just forgive all our sins? How did Jesus' death pay for sin? How could someone else die for my sins? Questions like these are what atonement theories strive to answer. Throughout the history of Christianity, a half dozen prominent theories have vied for adherence. And in what follows, I begin by surveying what the Bible says about atonement before moving to briefly cover seven atonement theories. And for each, I do my best to present it as objectively and honestly as I can. I do offer criticisms for each as I go, but I really try to make an effort not to construct a straw man argument that just seeks to present a theory in order to knock it down. Now, I had originally released this presentation as two separate talks a while back, Theology Part 17 and 18, my old theology class, But due to continued interest and inquiries about this subject, I thought it would be a good idea to rebroadcast this again. Here now is episode 427, Why Did Jesus Die? Exploring Atonement Theories. What I'd like to do with you tonight is look at two parts. Part one looks at what I call biblical non-negotiables, okay? And these are the result of reading through the New Testament mostly, and I have some Old Testament texts in there as well, but mostly New Testament, and looking at what are the main categories of thinking about why Jesus died. So I have eight. And then part two looks at seven different atonement theories. And so I have 15 points. They say a good preacher should always have three. Uh, but this is a theological conference, and so we're not preaching, are we? Anyhow, what I want to do is start with part one and look at these biblical non-negotiables, these eight biblical reasons why Jesus died, and then we'll go to part two and get into the more wild and crazy world of church history and theological development. These are my eight reasons. They're like eight stones here, and the first one on top you might be surprised to realize is the smallest attested in the New Testament, which is that Jesus died to provide eternal life. And for that, I have the text Revelation 5, 9, and 10, which says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now you see where it says, You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So this is talking about specifically Jesus' death, and what his death accomplishes is it purchases people so that they can eventually reign on the earth. And we have plenty of texts that talk about reigning on the earth, even within Revelation itself, like Revelation 2.26, to indicate that that is not a temporary situation, but that the reigning is actually forever. And so that's my first reason Jesus died to provide eternal life. The second one is that Jesus died to reconcile us to God. The idea is that God and we are are separated because of sin and rebellion, and, and so we need to be brought back together. That's what reconciliation is, bringing two parties together who are separated. 
This is Colossians 1, 19-22, a really powerful text. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there you have the cross clearly tied to this concept of reconciliation. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you have it there twice in those few verses that he died to reconcile us, to somehow heal the breach between us and God. Number three is Jesus died to express love. And I have two categories here. The dominant New Testament theme on this is that expressed in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, notice that it's God who showed his love through Christ's death. And that's the dominant theme in the New Testament. Although all the popular Christian music is that Christ loved us and died for us, the dominant theme in the scriptures is that God loved us so much that Christ died for us. However, the other aspect is also true. Like Revelation 1, 5 and 6, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So Jesus does love us. So the cross tells us that God loves us or shows us that God loves us. And it also shows us that Christ loves us. So those are two aspects to express love. And then the next point here, point number four, Jesus died to defeat evil. This is kind of an exciting one. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus dies to defeat the devil and to destroy the one who has the power of death. So in Jesus' death, he destroys death itself and the one who has the power of the death, which is the devil. Next, we have Jesus died to provide an example. Number five here. This is one that's usually avoided. 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. In his steps is, is copying somebody else who's going in front of you, just like a child following his parent. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The context here is a household slave who has a bad master that's unfair and unjust. And what Peter is saying is, in this situation... You are like Christ because Christ suffered unjustly and he has shown you how to suffer unjustly by not reviling in return, by not threatening and by not judging, but entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's an example. There are many verses on all of these. I'm just picking one verse for each one. And I have all of the ones that I know of in your paper. You know, it's probably not exhaustive, but uh, it might be exhausting. Anyhow, number six here, Jesus died to justify us apart from the law. And so this is this idea of justification we see a lot. Uh, Galatians 3, 10 to 13, we read, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, 
it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So this text talks about how because of Jesus' death, somehow this frees us or this justifies us apart from the law. Jesus died to free us from sin, to live righteously. This is the, probably the least referred to aspect of why Jesus died that we find in theology. The most ignored, in other words. And yet, it's the second biggest stone. right? In other words, there are more verses on this topic in the New Testament than on any other except for the last one, which is that Jesus died for our sins. I think you knew I was probably going there. Right? That's the big foundation stone at the bottom there. But second to last, Jesus died to free us from sin to live righteously. Not just to deal with sin, not just to cover sin, but to take it away from us so that we live righteously. That's a pretty powerful idea. For that, I have 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So he dies to kill sin in us. It's a pretty awesome idea. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then lastly, as I just mentioned, Jesus died for our sins. And I use for that Matthew 26. Jesus himself referred to this at the Last Supper when he said, Matthew 26, 27, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so his death, he knows even before he dies, is related to or brings about the forgiveness of sins. So he dies for our sins. Probably the the simplest expression we find of this is in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And when the Apostle Paul says, according to the Scriptures, he's not talking about the Gospel of Mark or something. He's talking about what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible because Paul's the first one to write. So if he says the word Scriptures, the writings, then he's talking about the Old Testament. And so then the question is, well, where in the Old Testament do we read about an explanation of Jesus dying for our sins? The big place, I mean, there are are plenty of them, but the big place that I, I look to is Isaiah 53. And there it's very strong and very clear, very poetic, very beautiful. And I have that in the paper, and a bunch of other related texts. You also have the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, which Hebrews makes much of. But if we get into all the details, I fear I will violate the time limit. So we must press on. If you're interested in this, I talk about three metaphors the New Testament uses. Jesus died as our sacrifice. Jesus died uh, to pay a debt. And Jesus died as a ransom is the third one. Jesus has a very strong ransom statement in Mark 10.45 where he says, The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And there are several other of these ransom scriptures. So that's a metaphor. A ransom is a price you pay for something. Not always, but frequently it's associated with slavery, purchasing someone out of slavery or purchasing a slave. Like Romans 6 talks about purchasing a slave from sin And now you're a slave to righteousness. You're actually not ever free in Romans 6. (laughs) You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. But you have this ransom idea. So this is all bound up in Jesus died for our sins. But alas, these are our eight biblical non-negotiables. 
whatever atonement theory you believe in may not encompass all eight of these aspects. And I think that's fine. But it cannot contradict any one of them. Because if it does, then it's, well, it, it can, but then it's not a biblical theory anymore. Because this is what the Bible clearly says about why Jesus died. Okay, so he, just once again, he died to provide eternal life. He died to reconcile us to God, to express love, to defeat evil, to provide an example, to justify us apart from the law, to free us from sin, to live righteously. And he died for our sins. Now that last category is just so vague. And Christians have historically not been able to let it stay that way. We, we've, we've always wanted to, to speculate the inner meaning of how exactly did that work? And that's where we get to these seven theories of atonement. There are probably 5,000 theories of atonement, but I'm just picking the big ones. My goal for this paper and this presentation is not to settle in your minds the right view or to advocate for a strong position. It's more to give you a lay of the land to survey what the different options are out there because you, you, can, you can look up atonement in the Stanford Encyclopedia or you can look it up in the Catholic Encyclopedia or a Bible dictionary and you're never going to get all of these. They're going to give you the, the three or they're going to give you four or just these two. You know, you read the Catholic Encyclopedia, it'll talk about the various Catholic theories, but then when it gets to the Protestant theories, it's all just very negative, and, uh, which you would expect. And so what I want to do is just lay out for you these seven different theories and offer some criticisms to each one, okay? And then in the conclusion, I may get as bold as to offer something, but feel free to uh, dialogue with that in the uh, questions and answers, okay? Are you ready? Ransom. This is the idea that Satan has legal rights to hold humankind captive. Through Christ's death, God pays the devil a ransom to free us. This is an ancient Christian view that looks at the whole subject from that perspective of, well, let me, let me put it this way. It looks at the whole thing as a, from the perspective of paying a ransom for setting a captive free. So it's, it's rather like, kind of like Job 2.0, where instead of Satan coming to God and saying, do you see Job? Uh, God comes to Satan and he says, let my people go. And Satan says, I'm not letting them go. They owe me all this debt. They're under my legal rights. And God says, all right, how much is it going to cost? And, and Satan says, well, it's going to cost everything. The, the most valuable thing to you, your only son. And God says, all right, I will pay the debt to set these people free. But then people started thinking about it and they're like, well, Satan would probably never do that. He would probably never let God redeem all the captives. So God would probably have to outmaneuver the devil. He would have to deceive the devil into unwittingly handing over all the captives. And that's what we find in Augustine of Hippo. He writes, But the Redeemer came, and the seducer was overcome. And what did our Redeemer to him who held us captive? For our ransom he held out his cross as a trap. He placed in it as a bait his blood. He indeed had power to shed his blood. He did not attain to drink it. And in that he, Satan, shed the blood of him who was no debtor, he was commanded to render up the debtors. And so God, through Christ, tricks the devil 
into overreaching, overstepping his legal rights, and he kills someone over whom he has no right because he never sinned. And so God and Jesus basically plot together to uh, deceive the devil into freeing us all. That's the ransom idea as it's been historically developed. You know, maybe you like some aspects of that, some aspects you don't like. But here are some criticisms. One, it gives Satan too much authority. Seems like Satan's really in control of a lot here. Number two, if Satan is himself an outlaw, how does he have rights over others? Look, if you're on the run for killing somebody and then somebody steals 20 bucks from you, I'd like to see you get justice. I'd like to see you go into a courtroom and be like, he stole $20. As soon as they catch you, they're going to put you on trial for murder. You know, like you don't really have any bargaining rights for that 20 bucks. And number three, why does God need to make a deal with the devil? Seriously, why does God need to make deals with the devil? Can't he just bind the strong man and plunder his house? And so that brings us to the next idea, which is spiritual warfare. Not a a, a deal struck between God and the devil, but a raid where God raids the devil and and forcibly takes back his people. And this idea is called Christus Victor. It's the idea of Christ the Conqueror. Here, in this second theory of the atonement, Satan has captured humanity through spiritual warfare. Satan hasn't, he doesn't have legal rights over us. He stole us. He ensnared us. He deceived us. And he captured us. However, through Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension, Christ defeats the devil and his minions, freeing humanity from captivity. And here's Irenaeus in the 2nd century. He writes, For he fought... And conquered. For he was man contending for the fathers, and through obedience doing away with disobedience completely. For he bound the strong man, and set free the weak, and endowed his own handiwork with salvation by destroying sin. For he is a most holy and merciful Lord, and loves the human race. For unless man had overcome the enemy of man, the enemy would not have been legitimately vanquished. So it's the idea of Christus Victor, Christ the Conqueror, who defeats evil in order to free humanity. Here are some criticisms of the Christus Victor position. It devalues sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Everything is done for you. In fact, sin is is completely really absent from the the theory. It's a spiritual warfare theory. So you have Christ defeating the devil, but you're basically irrelevant. To that situation. Satan forcibly captured us. Christ forcibly frees us. Right? So what about our responsibility in the whole situation? What about our sin? What about our repentance? What about our forgiveness? Number two, it's not clear how the crucifixion defeats spiritual evil. And number three, typically the New Testament associates Christ's ascension with spiritual victory. So in other words, there, there are a, a handful of texts that, that attach his death to defeating evil. And I already read one to you earlier. But the problem is, more frequently, much more frequently, it's his ascension that's associated with the cosmic victory. Like, for example, in Colossians. Here is one advocate of Christus Victor, Gregory Boyd, lamenting how weak the Bible is on the theory that he espouses. He says... Obviously, this account leaves unanswered a number of questions we might like answered. E.g., precisely, how did Calvary and the resurrection defeat the powers? 
In my estimation, the ancient Christus Victor models of the atonement, like some other models, became incredulous precisely because they too vigorously pressed for details. We must humbly acknowledge that our understanding is severely limited. In other words, the Bible doesn't really talk about this way of thinking much. So we're going to still believe in it, but not try to fill in the details too much. Well, historically, that's not really been satisfying. That's a pun. Because uh, we'll see in a minute, uh, Anselm had to come up with a satisfaction view. But a third one here is the moral exemplar. Christ goes to the cross as an example to us. So Jesus' death works subjectively, not objectively. Christ's sinless life and heroic death are examples for us to follow. His death inspires us to live morally. So you can see with the first three views here, when we look at ransom, there are biblical texts that say Christ died as a ransom. That's part of the non-negotiables. Number two, there are biblical texts that say Christ defeated evil when he died. And number three, there are biblical texts that say Christ's death is to provide an example. But the issue with each of these three views, the ransom view, the Christus Victor, and the moral exemplar, is that they just isolate one aspect of what the Bible says and say this is what atonement is all about and sort of ignore everything else. And so each of these theories is inadequate on its own as a theory. So that's another aspect of it. Here is... Peter Abelard, an intriguing fellow from the 12th century who espoused the moral exemplar. He was used to hearing about the ransom theory and he didn't like it. And so he said, you know what? We need to look at Christ as an example. Stop looking at him as a ransom paid to the devil. That gives the devil too much authority. So this is what Peter Abelard writes in his own words. How very cruel and unjust it seems that someone should require the blood of an innocent person as a ransom. Nevertheless, His Son received our nature, and in that nature, teaching us both by word and by example, persevered to the death and bound us to Himself even more through love, so that when we have been kindled by so great a benefit of divine grace, true charity might fear to endure nothing for His sake. So, in other words, His death inspires in us a desire and an ability to follow His example and live righteously. And again, for each of these, I have a lot more in the paper to say about it but that, that I don't have time to cover right now. Criticisms. How is it just for God to forgive sin? Why did Jesus need to die by crucifixion to provide an example? How did Christ bear our sins if his death is unconnected to our redemption? The awkwardness of the moral exemplar theory is that it, it really doesn't have anything to do with the cross per se. I mean, Jesus could have taken an arrow in battle and died that way or something and or just died of a disease and it would have just been as as well and it's not clear all those texts bearing our sins that we find in the new testament and in the old testament that how that all works with an exemplar view view so i think the exemplar view just like the ransom of the christus victor i think there are aspects of it that are true but none of them is going to satisfy and now finally we're on satisfaction View number four. And so this is the idea of paying a debt pioneered by Anselm in the 11th century. We owe God complete obedience. You guys agree with that? 
We owe God complete obedience. He's our creator. He ordains how we should live. And so it's our responsibility to live in, in line with what God says is right. Sins create a debt we must pay God. So every time somebody sins, or humanity sins, if you want to look at it as a group, there's an incurred debt. Now, how, you, how can you pay that debt back? If you just started living righteously and doing everything right, you already owe that. So you can never pay back. Even the most righteous person in the world, if they sin even just once, would still never be able to pay back the debt they owe to God. So, Anselm decides, God became a man to offer payment on our behalf. And the name of his book is Why God Became Man. And he was trying to figure out how that all worked. By living perfectly and dying, Jesus overpaid what he owed, satisfying God's requirement. And here's Anselm of Canterbury himself. He says, Therefore, the honor taken away must be repaid, or punishment must follow. Otherwise, either God will not be just to himself, or he will be weak in respect to both parties. And this it is impious even to think of. No man can accept, no man except this one ever gave to God what he was not obliged to lose or paid a debt he did not owe. And so Christ owed perfect obedience to God. Christ fulfilled that. That's what he owed. But then he goes to the point of offering his life, which he did not owe, because he had perfect obedience. And so Christ overpays God and satisfies the debt on behalf of all of humanity. And for Anselm, it's very important for him to say that there's an even transaction occurring. And so Christ has to be God because, and you hear this all the time today, right? Christ had to be God because if He wasn't God, He couldn't pay for our sins. That's a medieval monk speaking. I know modern Protestants are saying it all the time, but that's a medieval monkish mindset. And that's what we get from Anselm of Canterbury. Now, we have some criticisms of that. One is that making satisfaction excludes forgiveness. This is a point that the Socinians made against Anselm. Of course, the Socinians are six centuries later. But uh, there's nothing like arguing with a dead person, you know, because they can't, they can't write a book back or whatever. So you, eventually you're going to win that one, I think. But to a free... Forgiveness, nothing is more opposite than such a satisfaction as they contend for, and the payment of an equivalent price. For where a creditor is satisfied either by the debtor himself or by another person on the debtor's behalf, it cannot with truth be said of him that he freely forgives the debt. So that's the Rakovian Catechism pointing out that there's a problem with this satisfaction view, as Anselm put it forward. If it's true, then God does not forgive sins. Well, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. What about you? Didn't we read a verse earlier that Jesus said Himself at the Last Supper, here's my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins? Uh, So that's a problem. Number two is a devastating critique called the justice worry. And that's the idea that, let's say, somebody goes to, to court for murder, and the judge is there in the courtroom, And just at the last minute, the perpetrator, his mother, stands up and says, Take me instead. Put me to death. Give me capital punishment. Let my son go free. And the judge says, All right, I accept. And so they execute the mother in the place of her son. That's a double injustice. Injustice number one, the murderer goes free. 
That's an injustice, right? If you commit murder and you go free, that's an injustice. We're all in agreement on that? Injustice number two is an innocent person got punished. If you were the victim in that case, would you feel that justice had been done? Because the guy's mother took the punishment? No, you'd be doubly angry. Now he's going free and his mother's dead. And she was a sweet woman. And so that's what we call, the, it's a classic criticism called the justice worry. Don't worry, I think we have a way out of that. But I, I think you need to at least feel the tension of it for a minute before we bring a solution. It, number three, it reduces Christ's passion and death to a cold transaction. That's another problem with this satisfaction theory. And number four, God accepting a sacrifice is what makes it efficacious, not equal value. If you look at the temple and the sacrifices from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew system of worship, it's never equal payment. Never. Not once is there a human sacrifice. It's always an animal for a human. And so this will really get you thinking. If you think about the Day of Atonement, what animal was responsible for the sins of the nation? The goat. The one that lived or the one that died? The one that lived. So the goat doesn't even die. The one that died was to make atonement for the holy place, to basically cleanse the, the tabernacle area. It wasn't for the people's sin. The one that lived carried their sin away into the wilderness. And so this whole idea that like it's always got to be an equal transaction for, for God to accept the sacrifice is false. It sounds good, and since Anselm, people have thought that, but it's not the way we, that's not the pattern we see in the Bible. For example, there's uh, an Old Testament law about an ox. If the ox gores somebody and you knew it was the goring type and that person died, then whoever owns the ox, who should have known better, that person should be put to death. And then it says, unless he pays a ransom for his life. And it's like, whoa, is that, is that equal payment? I mean, like what dollar amount are we talking about here? Of course it's not going to be an equal payment for someone's human life. It's going to be whatever the victim would have required of that person. Or they could, they could insist on the death penalty in that case. Or there are many other examples from the law of Moses where a payment is offered in the stead of a human life. Uh, and sometimes when that doesn't work. All right, I want to take an excursus, just swing to the side for a second, and look at how belief in Christ's deity affects atonement. Because you've just heard me talking about this in the satisfaction theory. So I want to just handle this for a second, and I want to look at two advantages and three disadvantages, and then move back to theories five, six, and seven. Are you with me? Everyone still alive? Yes. We're great. I'm okay on time, for the record. You might not be okay, but I'm okay. <laughs> Here are two advantages to believing Jesus is God when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement. Equity. Jesus had to be God to pay for all of our sins. Look, whether it's true or not, people love that. It just makes mathematical sense to us. And it's just like, oh, that's so even. You know, like God is infinitely offended and God's life is infinitely valuable. And so God dies. And never mind all the contradictions in that that we're going to hear about later from the professor. Let's just call it even. And so there's, there's kind of an advantage to, to thinking about it from that perspective. Number two is the emotion. 
God left everything to become man and die for us. I mean, there's a strong emotional pull in that sense. And look, I'm sure if God could have died for our sins, He would have. I'm sure. He loves us so much that He would have died for us. But the problem with being God is you can't die. You're immortal. Right? And so it would be emotionally beautiful, and I I can admire it as an outsider, uh, but it doesn't overcome these three, in my opinion, devastating disadvantages. Uh, The first of which is what I call intra-Trinitarian sleight of hand. This is just so well put by the philosopher Robin Collins that I, I have to just quote it directly. Stick with me, and if your mental eyes cross, just tune out. We'll, we'll come back in a second. To see the problem clearly, first note that if we consider God the Son as one with God the Father, the atonement under the satisfaction view simply amounts to God paying God, which is equivalent to God forgiving the debt. On the other, so that's the one-self Trinitarian view. On the other hand, if we consider God the Son as distinct from God the Father, the question arises, who pays the debt we owe to God the Son? because of our sin against him. If Christ, that is, God the Son, pays it, that is equivalent to God the Son paying himself and hence forgiving it. But if God the Son can forgive the debt we owe him, why can't the Father do the same? I thought they were one God. So either way you look at it, it turns out that God the Father can simply forgive our debt without demanding repayment, contrary to the central claim of the satisfaction theory. What this is saying is, look, the Trinity might get you out of certain problems, like... How does an innocent one suffer on behalf of others? In a sense, it gets you out of the problem of evil because God takes the place of evil. But at the other hand, God's paying himself off. Let's say my one hand is the father, my other hand is the son. The father says, I'm really angry at those humans. You know, they owe me all this debt. I must be satisfied. And then the son says, well, I could pay you and reaches out and gives the other hand like a bunch of money. And then, and then this hand goes back in and says, all right, I'm satisfied now. Look, I just paid myself, right? So, I mean, there's, there's an inherent intertrinitarian logical sleight of hand. There we go. Uh, going on there. Uh, number two disadvantage is that it devalues the cross due to the incarnation and assumption of impersonal human nature. Those are two separate issues that I rolled into one. Uh, The first is, look, if God became man, and and Robin Collins has an incarnational view of the atonement, the problem is that now the cross isn't really that significant. What's really significant is not that he shucked off the impersonal human nature by experiencing death. What really is important is that he became man in the first place. And, And if you look at the Bible, where's the emphasis? I mean, I showed you eight reasons from the Bible in eight different verses, there was nothing in there about his birth. What's significant when it comes to the doctrine of the atonement is his life and his death especially. That's not to say his birth isn't important in general. Obviously it is, born to be the Messiah and so on. But when it comes to the atonement, what the belief of Christ's deity does is it pulls you too much towards his birth and it it just devalues the cross itself. And besides, if a God person unites with impersonal human nature, right? So then the person is God the Son, but who has his divine nature, and then you have the human nature, but it's not a human person. You see what I'm saying? And that's what dies. If impersonal human nature dies, that's less valuable than if a person dies, a human person, right? So a Unitarian view of atonement is actually 
putting a higher price on sin than a Trinitarian view because a whole person dies as opposed to just part of the nature. If not, it's, it's okay. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what I'm saying. It's, it's hard to swim in those waters, right? Uh, the last one is there there's, seems to be an inherent contradiction, not just a paradox or a sleight of hand, but a contradiction. And that is, which I already mentioned, that God is immortal, which means you cannot die, right? So he can't die for our sins. And it doesn't really matter what your definition of death is. Like, let's say death is separating your soul from your body. Let's say you believe that. I think that's wrong, but let's say you believe that. That's what he can't do if he's immortal. Your definition of death is completely irrelevant. Whatever it is, that's what he can't do because immortal by definition means you can't die. So that's another major disadvantage to believing in Christ's deity when it comes to the atonement. Let's get back to our seven theories. We're on five, which is pretty good. It's pretty good. We're doing pretty well. All right, penal substitution. This is the law court theory pioneered mostly by John Calvin. Martin Luther had a little to say about it, but John Calvin and Philip Melanchthon developed it more. This is the idea that human sin provokes God's wrath. If God is just, he must punish sin. Jesus bore the penalty of our sin, which is God's wrath, as our substitute on the cross. And here is an expression of that by John Calvin himself from the 16th century. He writes, Christ interposed, took the punishment upon himself, and bore what by the just judgment of God was impending over sinners. With his own blood, expiated the sins which rendered them hateful to God. By this expiation, satisfied and duly propitiated God the Father. By this intercession, appeased his anger, and on this basis found peace between God and men. Like there's every atonement vocabulary word in the book right there. I love it. You have the justice worry again. What's the justice worry? Why is Jesus suffering the penalty of my sin? So with satisfaction, he's paying it with his life. With penal substitution, he's suffering the penalty due to us. Okay, so it's a slight difference. And usually penal substitution people isolate that penalty as being God's wrath. So in in satisfaction, God is owed our obedience. Jesus obeys completely all the way to the point of death, satisfying God's requirement. In penal substitution, God's mad. He's mad at humanity. And so he's going to pour out all that anger and wrath and indignation on Jesus on the cross. And and Jesus will exhaust God's wrath. And so he's not angry at us anymore. Okay, so they're similar but different. The problem is you have somebody, once again, suffering in in the place of others um, who is innocent. And then um, the next is that the Son comes to save us from the Father. That's awkward, right? Isn't this all supposed to be God's love behind it all? I think we need to be saved from a lot of things, but not from God. Jesus does not fully pay for our sins. This is my own personal criticism of it. Jesus does not fully pay for our sins because he didn't suffer eternally. People who believe in penal substitution, such as John Calvin, also believe in eternal conscious torment. That's the everlasting flames of hell, right? So if that's what the penalty is for sin, that's what Jesus has to suffer. And after three days, if you get him out of the flames, he didn't suffer eternal conscious torment. He suffered three days conscious torment, which is not equivalent to the payment of our sins or the penalty of our sins. So that doesn't work. 
Also, if, if the penalty of our sins is eternal death, Christ didn't suffer that either. Because he was only dead three days. So there, there's something to think about. Uh, last point there, it, it looks like a human sacrifice to appease an angry pagan god. Right? And that's, we don't want to, that's not good. <laughs> this is a, a great point Robin Collins makes. He talks about the prodigal son. This is what he writes. But his father responded, this is after the son returned. Father, make me a hired servant. But his father responded, I cannot simply forgive you for what you have done, not even so much as to make you one of my hired men. You have insulted my honor by your wild living. Simply to forgive you would be to trivialize sin. It would be against the moral order of the entire universe. But father, please, the son began to plead. No, the father said, either you must be punished or you must pay back through hard labor for as long as you shall live the honor you stole from me. Then the elder brother spoke up, Father, I will pay the debt that he owes. And it came to pass that the elder brother took on the garb of a servant and labored hard year after year. And finally, when the elder brother died of exhaustion, the father's wrath was placated against his younger son, and they lived happily for the remainder of their days. Now, does that look like a picture of the atonement to you? No, it doesn't. That looks like an angry father who's, who's completely unbending and unyielding. How does the parable actually go? Well, yeah, there's that aspect. The older brother hates the younger brother. But how, how does it actually go? Well, the father forgives him and restores him to that relationship. We'll look at that again in a minute. All right, so on to number six. And I can almost guarantee you've probably never heard of this theory before. It's not very popular, but it is so cool. And, so, and, it's, and it's old, too. It's from the 1600s, so might as well go there. It's called the Governmental Theory of Atonement, pioneered by Hugo Grotius, who also had a sweet name, so it's another reason to look at it. This is the idea that God is the governor of the world who acts on behalf of the common good. So God is not a creditor to whom a debt is owed. He is not a judge enforcing justice in a courtroom. God is a governor who's trying to manage the entire world. God can relax the amount he requires. God can lessen the debt he requires to be paid. So the cross satisfies a partial payment and shows God takes sin seriously and it provides an example to overcome sin and inspires people to live righteously. So in other words, looking at God as the moral governor of the universe, the cross makes sense because it shows the sinfulness of sin, the horror of sin, the seriousness of it, and it provides this example, but it isn't equal to all the sins of the world, and that's okay because God is the judge and he can relax the payment if he so chooses. Just like if somebody owes you $100 and they say to you, I can't pay it, and you say, all right, well, what can you pay? And they say, I can just pay you 20. You say, all right, pay me the 20 and we're even. Is that unjust? Nobody would say that's unjust. They would just say you're being generous. There's no injustice there. There's just generosity. So here's Hugo in his own words from the 17th century. God has therefore most weighty reasons for punishing, especially if we are permitted to estimate the magnitude and multitude of sins. So sin's serious and God needs to punish it. That's what he's saying there. But because among all his attributes, love of the human race is preeminent, God was willing Though he could have justly punished the sins of all men with deserved and legitimate punishment, that is, with eternal death, and had reasons for so doing, he was, because of his love, 
willing to spare those who believe in Christ. But since we must be spared either by setting forth or not setting forth some example against so many great sins, in his most perfect wisdom he chose that way by which he could manifest more of his attributes at once, viz. both clemency and severity, or his hate of sin and care for the preservation of his law. Uh, Hugo Grotius was a pioneer in international law. And so for him, thinking of God as a moral governor of the universe who's doing the maximal benefit for the most people made sense. We also still have some criticisms, though. Uh, We still have to take the justice worry seriously because, once again, Christ is innocent. He doesn't deserve punishment, and he's receiving punishment. And then uh, Christ does not bear our sins on the cross uh, from this perspective. There's no mention of him bearing. There are lots of scriptures that say he bore our sins. So the governmental theory is not going to get us all the way home. My last one that I want to survey, I heard on Dale Tuggy's excellent podcast, the Trinity's podcast, was put forward by Joshua Thoreau, who writes about communal substitution. And he claims, and I think he's probably right, that he solved the justice worry. I know it's just going to keep you up all night. If I don't resolve this issue, half of you are already down for the night. But we're going to press on. Here's how it goes. Humanity as a group has sinned. We can agree with that, right? Let's look at this example by Josh. First, consider an example of an individual wrongdoing. A basketball player intentionally punches another player during a game. You got it in your mind? Right? Somebody punch, you know, maybe they got blocked and they're shooting and they got frustrated and they just punched the other guy. The league rightly finds the offending player. It seems wrong for someone other than the offending player, such as a teammate, his fans, his mother, to pay this fine. The guy who threw the punch should pay the fine, right? We all agree on that? I mean, it seems fair. It's not deep law here. It's just general fairness. Fines for violent offenses ought to be paid by the offender himself. Next, consider a case involving the same kind of wrongdoing, instead at the collective level. A basketball team, notice it's a team now, gets into a fight with another team during a game. The commissioner decides to punish the offending team, not simply each individual fighting player, with a fine. Now, there are lots of morally acceptable ways for the team to pay the fine. The players could each contribute some money. One player, even if he didn't himself throw any punches, could decide to foot it for the team. The coach could decide to foot it for the team. Again, even if he didn't throw any punches. All right? And so what Thoreau is talking about here is the difference between an individual offense and a group offense. And so as an individual, if you do something to somebody else, your mom can't take your place. You, you're going to have to deal with that situation yourself, at least if you're over a certain age that we all are in this room. But if you're in a group, then the group itself is held accountable. All right, let me see if I can clarify this a little bit. So humanity as a group has sinned. And you notice that throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, you always have these plural pronouns, right? Where it's taught, like, for example, our sin. You know, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? It's a we. Paul doesn't say, I have sinned and fallen short. That's true, too. But he he thinks in terms of we's, and that's more the Hebrew mindset. And so humanity as a group has sinned. We call it the fall. And as a human, Jesus is a member of the group. Jesus is part of the team. He's on our team. He's a member of the human race. You got me? As our CEO, 
slash Messiah, right? Jesus can take responsibility for the group either by making satisfaction or suffering the penalty. Whichever way you want to go with it, Thoreau's idea works both ways. Basically, what his theory is, is an upgrade to penal substitution or satisfaction. Whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant, you can sort of like upgrade to 2.0 by taking on his way of communally thinking about the whole system. Individuals can participate and appropriate through faith and repentance. So what happens is Jesus does not die for your individual sins. Jesus dies for sin with a capital S. He dies for the sins of humanity. And so just think of it like a, a naughty company that pollutes a river. The company pollutes the river, so now the government says, you need to say you're sorry, you need to stop polluting, you need to train your employees on proper protocol so you don't pollute in the future, and you need to pay this penalty, this fine. We've, we've seen that happen before, right? In our, right? Now, what, what's the company going to do? Are they going to do an internal investigation and find out who was involved? Well, maybe, but they don't have to. You know, maybe the people that were involved no longer even work there. But they still have to take responsibility, don't they? Because it was that same company that committed... Now, let's say the company decides to pay it out of their profits. They can do that if they want. Or they can single out the individuals involved and force them to pay the fine. Or they can fire people. You know, there are lots of different ways they could deal with it internally. The government doesn't really care. So long as they pay the penalty and change their ways, right? Now... If the company pays the penalty and promises to change their ways, but an offender inside that company says, no, I think it was right what we did. I don't accept the apology that the company is offering. I don't repent. What does the company do with that person? You're no longer in this company. We just had this major PR issue, and you're out there running your mouth saying you're not sorry. You're fired. See ya. You're no longer in the group. Or they could lay low and kind of pretend or whatever. But the the simple fact of the matter is that the company can pay the penalty or one individual from the company could pay. Say one person in the company is very wealthy. And they're like, I love this company. I don't want to see the stock prices fall. I'm going to pay this fine out of my own money. I'm a member of the company, though. So I qualify as a member of the group who can pay. Now, let's say it's the CEO, as so often happens. The CEO is the representative, not necessarily the substitute, but the representative of the group. And that is what Messiah is. Messiah is nothing if not a representative of the group of Israel. And so as the representative, he can say, I will take the penalty for the group. Now, individuals within the group still have to appropriate that or participate in that reality by repenting and asking for forgiveness. And so what's so slick about community substitution or communal substitution is that God can get his, his satisfaction, his justice, and at the same time, we can individually repent and be forgiven individually as we participate in that payment already made on behalf of the group. And it avoids the justice worry because Jesus, although he is innocent, he is a representative, and we recognize that representatives can take responsibility for the people they represent when those people are bad or do bad things. So I think it's a very worthwhile theory to to think about. And he has a a paper that I cited as well that you can look up online. Here are some criticisms. What Thoreau says is that what makes Jesus a fitting representative uh, is that, one, 
he is a legitimate member of humanity. And then he says, two, Thoreau says that Christ is the creator of humanity, and therefore he's causally responsible. I'm going to go ahead and criticize that and say that Christ does not have to be the creator of humanity or causally responsible for humanity if God appoints him as our leader. Okay? If, if somebody is an appointed leader, if, if we all in this room designate Dan Gill as our leader, he doesn't have to be causally responsible for us all gathering here. He doesn't have to be the one who sent out the emails and did the registration to bring us together for the theological conference. We could appoint Dan Gill as our leader to go apologize to the staff for not busting our tables diligently. Even if Dan himself has bust his table diligently this whole time. He can do that because we've appointed him. We've agreed that he's our leader. He represents us. He has such a gentle demeanor that he's going to be really good at this. And he's going to appease whatever wrath they may have at us. And then the third one there is God does not really forgive sin if he requires satisfaction. Well, I, I think we can get around that. We could say that he requires satisfaction or the penalty, but then he does forgive individual sins individuals okay so he he demands justice for the group and then expresses forgiveness for individuals who want to participate in that group of new humanity summarizing question why did jesus die that's what i'm working on with you here part one we looked at eight non-negotiable biblical facts do you remember these jesus died to provide eternal life Jesus died to reconcile us to God, to express love, to defeat evil. So Christus Victor is picking up on that defeat evil, right? He died to provide an example. That's moral exemplar. Uh, He died to justify us apart from the law. He died to free us from sin, to live righteously. And he died for our sins. Then we looked at these seven atonement theories. We looked at ransom, Christus Victor, moral exemplar, satisfaction, penal substitution, governmental, and communal substitution. And... It's not even an hour. So that's some good progress. Let me offer a tentative conclusion. And like I said to you before, I'm not trying to promote a definitive position. I'm trying to give you a lay of the land so that you can work this out and we can think about this together as a group. Combining the best. This is my three-paragraph effort to do that. I begin with communal substitution. As I wrote earlier, this is not really its own theory but an alteration or upgrade to either satisfaction or penal substitution. The latter of these insists that Christ took the punishment for sin upon himself in our place. In light of Isaiah 53, I find it difficult to deny such is the case. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. It says a lot of other similar things, but that's a very clear statement to me that he did suffer a penalty, a punishment piercing. He was killed. That's a punishment. He did that for us. It wasn't for himself. It was for us. So I think I want to stick with penal, uh, the penalty aspect here. However, I'm not at all convinced that God poured out his wrath on his beloved son while he hung on the cross, blood and sweat dripping from his brow. After all, the penalty for sin is death, not wrath. Christ propitiates God's wrath against the group by taking upon himself the death penalty as humanity's God-appointed representative. So I think he does propitiate, but not wrath directed at him, but wrath directed at us. We're the ones that have raised God's ire. Additionally, as a biblical Unitarian, I cannot accept the Trinitarian concept of God dying for us. 
That's kind of an obvious statement, I guess. This frees me from dealing with the devastating disadvantages I outlined in the excursus. Intra-Trinitarian logical absurdities, devaluing the cross, and contradicting immortality. However, I still have to deal with the question of how a mere man can pay for the sins of the world. I believe the communal view makes great strides in that direction, but in the end, we cannot say that the penalty he suffered on behalf of the group actually equates to the sheer amount of communal offenses. Mankind is excessively wicked and has been so since the beginning. We wage war, murder, rape, torture, deceive, manipulate, abuse, discriminate, and pollute, just to name a few examples of chronic human misbehavior. We constantly dishonor and disregard what God says is right. Consequently, I take refuge in the primary insight of the governmental theory that God exacts payment while simultaneously relaxing it. In the end, God is the moral governor of the cosmos, so he conceives of a way to deal with the separation brought on by sin while showing mercy and justice, as well as displaying the exceeding horror of sin and providing an example to inspire those who would come later. Thus, he not only deals with sin, but he does so in a way that maximally reduces future sin. So pulling it all together, we have a governmental communal penal substitution theory, Alas, such a title is not likely to catch on. So maybe you can uh, do better. If you want to access an electronic copy of this paper, feel free to log on to restitutio.org. And I also have this presentation there for you as well. Thanks. Well, that brings this episode to a conclusion. I hope you learned something and that you benefited from this survey of different views would love to hear your thoughts on this. If you would like to share them, you can do that at restitutio.org. You can just click on the button on the top that says podcast info and leave a voice message via SpeakPipe or find episode 427, Why Did Jesus Die? and type in your remarks there. Now, I did want to let you know I had released a very brief blog post a few days ago that a lot of people have checked out, but it's this very interesting scholar's version of the Gospels, uh, so-called SV. And it's a translation pioneered by, by the Greek expert Robert Funk in 1988, but that has continued, even after his death, to go through several revisions. And since this particular version is put out by scholars that do not have a faith commitment, let me just say it that way, there's a little bit more freedom to depart from the traditional translation. So I posted the prologue, that's John 1, 1 to 18, on restitutio.org under the title, A New Translation of John 1. So check that out if you're interested. I will say this, that the word logos is not translated word, but instead divine word and wisdom, lowercase w, on both word and wisdom there. And a number of folks have commented in on that, so I just want to let you know about this interesting translation. Well, that brings our show today to a close. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.